yes, he's just flown right over our heads. Oh my God. <laughs> Silhouetted through the leafless birch trees and the starlit sky. Wow. He's trying to work out whether, whether I'm a threat. Welcome to the Ashdown Forest podcast. This podcast is for anyone who wants to discover more about these remarkable 10 square miles in Sussex. I'm Eka Morgan and I'm an audio producer. In this episode, we'll have dawn and dust walks on the forest and interviews with the chief executive of Ashdown Forest, James Adler, and Green MP, Caroline Lucas. We'll also cover the thorny issue of new car parking charges on the forest. Let's start by meeting wildlife guide Tom Forward, who's with me now. Tom, I know that now you're an upright member of society, but you spent your youth being chased off the forest by rangers. I certainly snuck across the forest on my mountain bike on occasion. That's a strict no-no. And the dens that me and my mates built after school were definitely big enough to attract the wrong kind of attention from the rangers, for sure. And there's probably a few other things that, oh, I don't know if they should come out now, but may come out in, the, in future episodes. <laughs> but now you're a wildlife guide and ecologist. Yeah. Well, I've been around, I've travelled far, and I'm back home. And I feel strongly that here, this place is what inspired me to do the work that I do. It's such a special place. It's so important on so many levels for people and for wildlife. And I want to be a part of protecting that. Great. Well, you're about to take me on a dawn walk. And now we're at Table Gill. And when I first moved to this area, I did all 13 leaflet Ooh. walks. Yep, you that you can get at the Ashdown Forest Centre or online on the Ashdown Forest Centre website. Yeah. And they really made me feel part of the area once, once I'd done those walks. I felt mm. a, a greater sense of belonging. Um, but you grew up here, so you've got different credentials. But maybe, Tom, you can establish the really key fact to start us all off with, which is that the Ashdown Forest isn't actually a forest. We call it a forest, and when you say forest, most of us will say woodland and that's not strictly true. Anyone who comes for a walk on the forest will find themselves in quite an open landscape with sweeping views north and south and not really feel much sense of a woodland. It's two thirds heathland. So it's a big, a big open area uh, dominated by bracken and heather and gorse. But the reason we call it a forest is probably thanks to the Normans who used it as a word to describe a royal hunting ground. And heath is actually a very rare and precious landscape. Super rare. You think of any designation you want to give this landscape. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty. It's a site of special scientific interest and the list goes on. And uh, we chose table gill. And gill is one of those thorny words that when I moved to Sussex, I'd never heard before. And I feel some frustration with the word gill because I look it up and it says a little stream. Yeah. And it also says steep bank. I think the easiest definition that captured it all is steep-sided wooded stream. But actually you can see this stream has, you know, for thousands of years been carving its way down through what? Well, it's actually sandstone. And one of the things that a lot of people remark on when they walk past these streams on the Ashdown Forest is how they look orange in color. 
and then if you go and swill your hand through a stream you'll come up with a bit of an orangey tint on your skin then you smell your hands and then you go oh that smells like rust and in fact that is what you are smelling there seams of iron ore running through the sandstone and that gives us this curious orange color that you'll see in the streams now let's set off and see what we come across been wandering through what was mostly oak, birch and beech woodland and then all of a sudden some deep dark green colours have jumped out at us of the yew trees. There's a little cluster of them here and I stopped because at this time of year the female of the yew trees are offering some lovely bright red berries. Bright red especially to attract the attention of our winter visiting thrushes which might be red wings and field fairs coming all the way over here from Scandinavia and listen for a couple of sounds that will tune you into whether they are indeed our winter visitors. The field fair in, in flocks will have this lovely chuck, 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 chuck call and the red wing has a much softer kind of And we're going to try and teach our, our listeners some yeah. of these sounds. <laughs> yeah. So can I just hear the field fair again? So the, the field fair, it's sometimes written as a C-H-A-K. Chuck, 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 That must be one of the easier bird songs. Uh, it's sound. not its song. We never get to hear them sing. That's, ah, that's, ah. That's, that, that, that's the bit. We only hear their calls. They go off to, back to Scandinavia to breed and that's where they have a very different song ah. um, which they use to lure in their partners. And can we uh, just hear the red wing And again? the red wing also has a song that we, never, we rarely, rarely hear but the calls we hear a lot and they migrate by night so you'll hear, hear them as you're stumbling home from the pub. This lovely tss, it's slightly descending at the end of end of the sound. So our resident birds, we hear their call, we hear their song. Yeah. But some birds, we only hear one aspect of their yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, Because we only see them for one part of their life, the part of their life where they're busy just trying to stay alive rather than busy trying to breed. Tom and I are just making our way back to the car park and uh, we've just come across a couple with a dog who's bigger than them. <laughs> and uh, it's a bit of an obvious question, but what brings you to the forest? Getting out in the countryside really and um, getting them exercised. We, we like it, obviously in Tunbridge Wells there are sort of wood, woodland around but there's nothing as big as there is here. So you're from Tunbridge Wells? Yes we are, yeah, yeah. So are you disgusted or delighted? No, delighted, no. <laughs> no, we love it here, it's nice. And have you had any issues with your quite enormous dog chasing uh, sheep? No, we haven't come across any sheep. There's um, horses and he's not great with anything bigger than him. He'll bark, tend to bark at it so I normally get him on a lead. Brilliant. Hiya, and you're Hi. also with the big dog. I am, I'm Andy's wife, Emma. Yeah, this is Rex. And have you also heard about the car parking charges? It's got to be done. If it means that it's going to, for the upkeep of the forest, and they've lost their funding, I totally get it, really. I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me having to pay. What do you think, Rex? Rex. <laughs> Rex is up for the upkeep of the forest. <laughs> we, we were just saying it's so foggy, it was like the Hound of the Baskervilles, and now we have met the Hound. <laughs> Thank you. 
So uh, James Adler from the Ashdown Forest Centre is doing a series of talks around the Ashdown Forest about climate and the Ashdown Forest. And I'm here in Nutley and I'm going to ask a few people if they have any opinions about car parking. And I found... I am Patricia Patterson-Vanegas. I am the Wilden District Councillor representing Forest Row. And I am fundamentally against car parking charges in the forest. However, given national policies that don't protect our environment and our biodiversity, I can see the case for the Ashdown Forest trying to survive, trying to be protected. But I believe that government priorities could be different. I'm Chris from East Grinstead. It's kind of a necessary evil. The forest does need uh, a source of income. It's got its income cut. Grudgingly, I accept parking charges. So my name's Ben, I'm from Hartfield, and I think the car parking charges on the Ashdown Forest are a necessary thing to do, really, and I'm more than happy to pay so that I can access the forest and, and make use of the amenities, and if that covers the upkeep for those car parks and paths, then um, I'm happy for that. So I've finally been able to track down James Adler, who's the chief executive of the Ashdown Forest, to ask him the million questions I have. And, and I'm going to have to store some up, James, for future, future editions, because there are an infinite number of questions I'd like to ask you. But let's start with actually just what drew you to the job? It's the most beautiful place, isn't it? Um, I came here as a boy and played blue sticks with the family. I've loved Heathland all my life. I was born on a Heathland nature reserve and my career has progressed along those lines. And how is it, for starters, that this 10 square miles has actually survived development? Remarkably, I think is the word. When you look at a map of the forest, it's a crazy shape. You know, it's a heart shape, but missing the middle. It's got all sorts of bits and pieces torn out of it. And a lot of that happened hundreds of years ago. The forest has been turbulent for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, public access was only really allowed on in the 20th century. What's happened in the 20th century is a different type of challenge between nature conservation and recreational use. And those are the challenges of the, of the 20th and 21st century, along with climate change and biodiversity loss. And uh, you said recreational use, and I hear that visitor numbers have gone up by 150,000 a year. So is there a moment where there's a tipping point and there are actually just too many people for, or have we, have we already reached that tipping point in terms of this fragile habitat? The simple answer is we don't know. I don't think we're looking at a tipping point. Our greater concern is the level of local housing development and working with new visitors to the forest who may not understand that when they're walking their dogs, if the dogs are just tearing through the undergrowth all the time, they can be disturbing the wildlife that the forest is protected for. And indeed, it's that wildlife which keeps the forest safe in the 21st century. The Dartford warbler and the nightjar, those two bird species. So is it really the case that if we lose the Dartford warbler or the nightjar, the protection of the forest is lost? For the special protection area, those two bird species are critical. They're the ones that are on the citation to look after the forest. So yeah, if we lose those, potentially we lose some of our very hefty protections. Right, we've got to the point in this interview, James, where we've got to tackle the elephant in the room. And when I set out to do this podcast, it's entirely about celebrating what we have, celebrating the Ashdown Forest. But when I first heard about car parking, my initial reaction was a very huge no. I know there's a lot of detail, so let's keep it simple. But 
how did it come to the point of having to introduce car parking charges? Well, let's start with the fact that we were incredibly unusual in not having car park payments. Just about everywhere has car park payments because it's a fundamental income. The forest receives a significant amount of money from central government to look after the nature conservation elements. It receives no funding from central government for the 1.5 million visits a year. Now, the local authority have supported the forest, but they are under huge pressure with their funding, and much of it goes to social care. They reduce their grants down from 120,000 a year down to zero. The long-term funding of the forest is deeply challenging and the costs go up but the key message I want to leave you with Echo is it's not car park payments or other funding it's car park payments and other funding and and what I've come to understand is of course access is free if you come on foot if you come by bicycle if you come by public transport it's still free it is just the car that's being charged and if you are on any kind of benefit it's five pounds a year blue badge holders come in free But what about the grey area of pensioners who may not be on any kind of credit, but really it is an extortionate amount for them? And this is the deep challenge, isn't it, is is where do you draw a line through all of this? Most of the other sites that we've looked at have no concessions in place. So they may allow blue badge holders to park for free, but they haven't given concessions to those on universal credit, which came up very strongly through the consultation that we did. And we had many thousands of replies to that consultation, really advocated the universal credit option. Last question on car parking now. I was at Long Car Park the other day and actually met one of the car park wardens and got chatting to him. And um, I was asking him what kind of reaction he's getting. And he did say the vast majority of people have been very kind, but he has also had a bit of aggression. But he actually said he worked in Lewis Prison for four years and, and this is a walk in the park compared to that and he's enjoying his job. But at the time, he was wiping off spray paint from all the QR codes and and someone had gone round all the QR codes and spray painted them. And what a shame because when we talk about stress someone doing that is making it harder for others to visit the forest but if you look at the comments on Facebook you'll actually see that many people are very unhappy with the person who is going around and spraying that so I would encourage them if they want to come and have a conversation with us come and have a conversation with us our doors are open. Thank you, James. And just to give a bit of a a voice to the wildlife, so it's not just humans, maybe you could name some winter birds, and I've got quite a lot of bird recordings, maybe three little birds. Yeah, the the three, if you're coming here, that you should be looking out for. How are we going to stick with three? So the one that you will hear if you're moving around in any of the woodland areas, you should hear blackbirds. And I know they're really common and everyone knows what they are, but they're one of our most beautiful birds and one of our most beautiful singing birds. So keep an ear out for them. If you're out on the open heath, scour the edges really carefully as you're looking out across the viewpoints because at the moment we've got a wintering hen harrier down from up north that's not a little bird it's not a little bird it is unfortunately looking for little birds but it's it's a wonderful one in terms of the little birds out on the heath look out for dartford warbler they're here year round you might dismiss them initially as a little brown job but if you've got a pair of binoculars have a have a look at them they look like little court jesters and they sit on top of the heather or flitting around in it And just remember, it's that little bird which is really underpinning keeping the forest safe at this moment in time. Great. So we've got blackbird, hen harrier and Dartford warbler. Did the hen harrier make a distinctive call? Not really. And not this time of year. They they like to keep themselves pretty quiet. We need to hear their call for this this, uh, bird interlude before we get back to humans. All right. In which case, let's go for stone chat, which sound exactly as you would expect them to, like two stones being clicked together. 
Great, so we'll have Blackbird, Dartfoot Warbler and Stone Chat coming up now. Thank you, James. Thank you for talking to me. I've just come from a meeting at the Ashdown Forest Centre, a rather rare meeting with farmers, conservationists, wildlife groups, and a speaker from Yellowstone Park, who also works on conservation around the world, talking about connectivity. And at the meeting, I find Caroline Lucas, our sole Green MP, and I'm really grateful that you're actually at this meeting. Can you tell me what prompted you to come and, and what you got out of it? I just felt very excited to hear from an expert from the US in, in connected landscapes. And I must say, he gave a, a fantastically inspiring speech, showing what is possible. You know, so much in the environment debate seems like it's such hard work and you're not sure if it's going to work. And it does just feel like you're, you're really going uphill. And, and that's still true. But it was wonderful to hear of the success stories that he's been involved in when it comes to connecting these landscapes and how really conservation doesn't work if it's just a series of pockets, that great fragmentation. And just seeing the way that he's worked in so many different continents, joining up these protected areas was, was really inspiring. And you're down in Brighton, really, but your work can extend to Ashdown Forest and, and the rest of the country. What do you feel is the link with Ashdown Forest to your work and the Green Party? Well, one of the projects was being discussed here was a, were a slightly smaller version, or a very much smaller version of what uh, Gary's been doing in the United States. And that's this wheel to the waves idea of connecting conservation areas all around Brighton. And I just think that's so exciting. Brighton is very proud to be an urban biosphere. And to have this kind of visual way of understanding how the different areas of conservation around the city can be joined up and really make it even more special from from the Ashdown Forest down to the the sea kelp on the coast there I, I, I think it's something that's going to really motivate people I don't think many people actually even know about it yet so learning about that firsthand was also another motivation for coming here today. And as you probably know since Covid the Ashdown Forest now has 100,000 more visitors a year and there's great pressure on the car parks and great pressure on our funding I say are oh, I'm just a local person who loves the Ashdown Forest. Our funding has been greatly reduced. When you hear talks like today, you see what a key role biodiversity plays. Is there any hope for national government or local government supporting our funding more? Because it's certainly not at the moment. Well, I mean, I would love to be able to say yes. Obviously, I'm an opposition MP and... Um, and I think one area of hope is the fact that the evidence of the public health benefits of access to nature are becoming overwhelming. I mean, the amount of evidence now, and we saw it through COVID, there's a reason why people come out to Ashdown Forest when they're feeling, you know, closed in and, and depressed, maybe because we know that being out in nature is so good for mental health as well as physical health. Maybe that might be a compelling argument, even if a, a more narrow environment argument isn't. I hope perhaps that could shift them, if nothing else. And last question, as I'm aware you've got to catch your taxi. Um, to the rail station, I quickly <laughs> of say. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
as you probably also know, the Ashdown Forest has come to the difficult decision to have to charge for car parking. And there's a lot of local acceptance of that, but also a lot of local resistance, because if something's been free, it's hard to suddenly pay for it. What would be your message to people who are, are feeling quite begrudging about having to pay for car parking? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a perennial problem. You know, even though it's not very much in itself, for some people that is a lot of money and might make it more difficult for them to come. So that that is a challenge. But I think all we can do is perhaps demonstrate what that money is being used for. You know, it's not going to line the pockets of shareholders somewhere. It's actually about ensuring that this is a, a landscape and an environment that can be here for visitors in tens of years, hundreds of years' time. You know, we've got to preserve it, conserve it, restore it. So I think if we can make that bit clear, that it is an investment in the future, then perhaps that's one way of making it a bit easier. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks so much. So Tom and I have come back to Table Gill at night time and it is absolutely pitch dark. We've actually just seen a shooting star, which is very auspicious. I came out hoping for tawny owls. Yeah, good time of year for them. Haven't heard any yet. Any Might, other it's owls? It's too dark to see them. Their barn owls at this part of the forest are recorded. They're not very common on the forest. They fly in twilight. There's a small chance of them. And then the odd mammal. Yeah, fallow deer, which are incredibly common on the forest. Perhaps a fox uh, and maybe even a roe deer. And what about bats? What about bats? Well, it... It's a little cool tonight. It's quite still. And if there are the odd moths flying, then there's a slim chance that there might be a bat out after them. But any self-respecting bat should be hibernating at this time of year. But on the odd night, when temperature climbs into double figures, then there's a chance of maybe a common pipistrelle having a cheeky forage. Do you think the chances of seeing them or anything is greater down by the gill? We could definitely venture into the woodland closer to the gill and see if that changes our fortunes. Sounds to me like your wish has come true, Eka. Tony out. There's at least two of them. You can hear them calling on the slope the other side of the gill from us. It's a tricky time of year for the young tawny owls because the parents are staking claim to a, to a territory uh, and the young ones are being pushed out and the, also the young ones are, are having to have a go at setting up their own territories as well. But actually it almost sounds to me like there are three owls calling to each other now. I'm going to do a little owl mimic. I'm going to hoot through my hands and see if that'll draw them in a bit closer. The males are the hooters and the, the females do the kivik, the tuit part of the call. So you can get this lovely duetting between a territorial pair where the female go kivik and the male go woo and call back. So I, I can't do a good mimic of the, of the female call but I can do a, a reasonable male hoot. And it seems to have the, had the effect of pushing three owls slightly further away <laughs> rather than bringing them in. <laughs> In which case, let's let's go further towards the gill. Okay. Oh, there it is. Right in close. There he is. He's just flown right over our heads. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just saw him. Missed him. Silhouetted against the, uh, through the 
leafless birch trees and the starlit sky. Wow, God. So there's a terrace. Oh, oh there he is again, there again, is. right over our heads. Wow. Well, he's trying to work out whether, whether I'm a threat. Oh, they're joining together now. What's that slightly frantic sound? That's a Yeah, it's a sort of, well, they've got quite a, quite a big range of sounds. We kind of just pin them as being to it, to woo, and that's it. But actually, the females can do a really curious sort of bubbling call, it's called. And, uh, and, yeah. and then you get these funny, kind of slightly more raspy, perhaps less practised versions of their, of their sound. Maybe a young bird having a go. Oh. <laughs> Nearly falling into the gill there. <laughs> We're definitely on a steep-sided, wooded stream <laughs> in the dark. As they're going like the clappers, shall we respect their space and, and leave them to it? I think they've told us pretty clearly that we're in their territory. We'll just sneak back out of the woodland, out onto the open heath, and see what we can find there. Okay. Oh, that was a barn owl, and we had the amazing call that they, that gives them one of the other names, a screech owl. There it is. Like that. It's calling back. And it's only a bit annoying that we're standing right under the flight path here, so we're having to kind of do this against the backdrop of planes going overhead, but there it is again. So if a barn owl and a tawny owl flew onto the same branch, what, what would their interaction be? Oh, I don't know. Maybe a little bit of a, little bit of a scuffle. It's not really in either of their interests to start a war because they don't really compete with each other. Surely they both eat voles. Yeah, but most of the tawny owls hunting is done in the woodland and the barn owls will maybe nest in a hollow tree on the edge of a woodland, but they prefer to hunt out in the open, so... Oh, and that's the alarm call of a deer barking at us. <laughs> There's that barn owl again. The night just keeps getting better. <laughs> <laughs> So we're coming to a close now, and before we sign off, Tom is going to do our guess the sounds. One hard one, one easy one. Okay, so this sound is one that always cheers me just when you're really willing winter to end and spring to come, and it still will feel cold and grey and wintry, and a walk out on the heath might give you the beautiful descending... call of this very special bird that lives on Heathland and the easy one is actually if you were listening carefully could be found earlier on in the, in this podcast and it is this call that kiwik 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 and just in case my mimicry versions of the sounds we want you to guess aren't accurate or good enough for you then we will pair them with some genuine recordings And for answers to the mystery sounds, go to ashdownforest.org forward slash podcast.
challenge is on. Thank you, Tom. And it's customary at the end of podcasts to encourage listeners to go on Twitter, to go on Facebook, to go on Instagram. I personally encourage you to simply get out onto the forest. But Tom is more into that kind of thing. So over to you, Tom. So if you want to come and share your experiences of the forest with us or if there are any thoughts or suggestions that you'd like us to feature in an upcoming podcast. So check us out at Ashdown Forest Podcast, 10 Square Miles. And that's all for now. It is indeed. Yeah, see you next time. See you next time.